Hello, my name is Federico Toledo and welcome to the Quality Sense podcast, where you will have the chance to improve your sense for quality by listening to some leaders who are amazing at what they do in the software industry. In each show, I have a one-on-one -on -one chat with them discussing specific topics related to software testing and quality. I had the chance to interview Michael Bolton and I will share with you our conversation today. Michael is one of my personal heroes in testing, someone who makes you think outside the box, and he's known for stirring up a great debate. He and James Buck are the co-authors of Rapid Software Testing Course, where they present a new mindset for testing software, emphasizing context over best practices. I had the opportunity to take the course in Uruguay when he came down for testing UI, and I thoroughly love it. Michael, to this day, is one of the most influential people in software testing, so it's a great honor to have him on the show. Hello, Michael. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation and participating in this podcast. Uh, for me, it's an honor to have you here. Oh, well, the honor is mine. Thank you. You know, I, I, I want to start talking about board games because uh, I love board games and I know you like them. And <laughs> this is related to what I consider the biggest achievements of my life. <laughs> because I remember a couple of years ago, we spent some nights uh, hanging out in, in Montevideo. And I had a chance to play set game with you, which, by the way, is an excellent game to, to practice pattern recognition and things like this. And I could win a couple of hands. <laughs> do you remember that time in Montevideo? I, I, do, I do. I have a lot of uh, uh, experience playing set. And I'm not a great player, really. I, I, don't, I don't think of myself as a good player. Well, you, you get better with practice, right? um to some degree um but when it comes to playing set uh i i don't even have a look in on paul holland uh for example i, I don't know if you if you know paul yeah i met i met him but uh we i, I didn't know that he was good at, at, at oh he's, he's insanely good at, oh. at, it's, it's ridiculous um uh, paul's good at a lot of things uh, a whole lot of things but he's a just a vicious set player <laughs> <laughs> I got impressed how Paul can manage uh, the interaction of a group of people with the key cards, I, I think it's uh, the, the Yeah, the key cards, the facilitation thing. Uh, yes, a, a different kind of cards, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yes, he's, he's good at all kinds of things associated with cards. He's good at uh, uh, magic tricks, too, oh. which is another thing to do with cards. So there you go. Interesting. So, Michael, my first question for you is, uh, because this is something that I don't know about you, how did you end up in software testing? Uh, as so many people do, um, it was a, a, a crooked path um, that uh, starts with being born as a human being. Because <laughs> all humans are born testers. I've, I've, I've been saying this a fair deal lately. Uh, we're born to test. We're born to to pick up things and examine them and investigate them 
and uh, get experience with them and explore them and experiment with them. Um, you know, it, 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 we're, I just had this happen to be sitting on my desk here, this little uh, tape measure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, little kids, you give little kids a tape measure and they play with it. And, uh, you know, they, they pull it out and they look at the marks on it. And then they do one of these, right? Ah! And they snap themselves and so on. So <laughs> we had these experiences of learning stuff and observing stuff and interacting with stuff and, and experiencing pain with stuff sometimes too. <laughs> so we're all born to be testers. Um, and I was, I was brought up in a family. My, my parents were... Um, uh, my mom was an English teacher. My father was an Anglican priest, uh, but they both valued learning and, and education and so on. And they, they uh, instilled that in me. I read a lot and uh, uh, learned a lot. Um, but the first time I, uh, well, I, <laughs> another way be uh, another path, another step on the path of being a tester was I got a, uh, a home computer somewhere around 1986, maybe, it must've been earlier than that, 8045. Somewhere in there, I got an Atari 800 computer. And uh, I, I was curious as to how the thing worked and it was relative, relatively inexpensive to find out about that. So I became fascinated by the internals of the thing without ever actually being good at it. Um, I was very curious about how these things worked. So I remember buying a bunch of books. Uh, uh, Mapping the Atari was one, right? Mapping the Atari computer, uh, which uh, uh, talked about the registers in the processor and memory locations and all that sort of stuff. And I, I didn't really uh, grasp it terribly well at the time, but I was fascinated by it. Um, my... A girlfriend at the time bought an IBM PC, well, a clone, and a laser printer, because uh, she had the idea of a typing business, a transcription business. And uh, uh, so figuring out how that worked, learning how the machinery worked. And it, once again, I, I kept buying books about how the guts of it worked and how to take best advantage of it and the, you know the tips tips tricks and track uh, traps books and the the um, uh, the peter norton books on the internals of the machine and so on and that sort of stuff was just always fascinating to me so when it came time to i was working in theater at the time so this was definitely a hobbyist thing when it came time to uh uh take some time off of theater because theater work is inconsistent um I started working for a headhunter and it's a, a long story that I'll make shorter. I, I started doing data entry for them because uh, they needed to um, uh, locate resumes and CVs for the applicants, for the, the candidates. And uh, uh, they had a huge backlog of it. And they said, well, our, our problem is we can't keep anybody on the job to, to do this. And I said, well, I'll, I'll happily do that so you can find my <laughs> CV more easily. Um, but I, I realized that I could apply tools to this job. At that time, this is like 1988 or so, um, people didn't have 
uh, concept that there were, you know, not only could you use a computer, but you could put extra stuff onto the computer to help you do stuff on the computer. Now, you know, I mean, it sounds like a commonplace to us, but that was the state of the world back then. So I had, um, uh, I snuck in from my, uh, uh, my personal collection of software. I, I put some stuff on the company's machinery so that I could do my work faster and more easily. And then I realized that the application that they were using kept its data in a form such that I could write code to get to that data in a way that was more efficient than the application did. It, it's as though um, uh, I've been doing the same kind of thing lately with Mind Manager. Uh, it's all just XML. Well, in this case, it was all just the DBF database format, right? So I could write programs. And that is when I really started to uh, think about testing because the people who I was writing this software for were not experts. They wanted to get stuff done. And as a programmer, I worked, which is a, a title I kind of just stole. I grabbed, the, uh, I grabbed the job. I invented the job for myself in this organization. Oh, you've got a programmer now. <laughs> so I could not have faith that people would be able to run my stuff without problems. So I had to put myself in a position where I would try to encounter the problems myself. And that, I think, it's very shortly after you become a programmer that you realize you're a tester as well, <laughs> if you're a good programmer. So that was, it was sort of interesting because I was not coming at programming from the perspective of being a programmer. I was not a computer science student, right? I, I had not been born into that, you know, or I had not gone through an education for that sort of stuff. And what was, what was important to me was how people got to use the product. Now, for a lot of programmers, when they, they go through computer science school, the kind of training they get in how to test stuff doesn't involve interacting with the product and experiencing it in the same kind of way that, that my flavor of testing is all about. They're much more into, you know, uh, uh, formally proving algorithms. <laughs> and uh, uh, if they're getting any kind of education in, in testing at all, it's usually at the unit level, right? Showing that these inputs map to these outputs and they do so in, in an appropriate way. But they don't, it's a general pattern, so far as I can tell in computer science school, that they're not uh, uh, focusing computer science students on general systems. They're not focusing computer science on user experience. You get more of that in computer engineering schools, I think, I suspect, mm -hmm. but rather less in computer science because that's a branch of the math department. Right? <laughs> so um, my flavor of testing is very much grounded in the idea that I was close to the people who are using the product and I was aware of their desire to get stuff done without friction, without problems. And so that, that's the kind of testing that I started to focus on. Then I moved to the Canadian office of a company that was headquartered in California. I eventually ended up working uh, down there as a customer support person, technical support. 
And in the technical support role, once again, you're exposed to the fact that uh, there's a wonderful thing that David Platt said in his book, um, uh, Why Software Sucks. <laughs> he says, people don't want to use software. They don't want to use your software. They want to have used your software, right? The software for them is a means to an end. They just want to get something done. They have to very similarly. Yeah, yeah. They don't, people don't want to drive somewhere. They want to be somewhere. Right? <laughs> yeah. Very, relatively few people uh, uh, enjoy the process of driving particularly much. They drive because they want to be someplace else. Um, but then Platt also pointed out something really interesting. I'm fast forwarding to 2008 when he gave this talk. He said, this is why geeks, programmers, and he did this very close to you. You're in Berkeley, right? So he, he did this in the, at a conference in San Jose. He did a poll. He asked, how many people here, audience of programmers, mostly a few testers, few program managers and other software people, mostly programmers. He says, how many people here drive cars with a manual transmission, with a stick shift? And way more than half the hands go up. Now, this is in America, where about 12% at that time, that somewhere between 8, eight to 12% of the population was driving cars with a manual transmission. And this was over half, way over half. And he points out that geeks, right, people who are involved in technology, like stick shifts. They like manual transmission because they enjoy the process of driving. They like that sense of control over the car. But most people don't want that. Most people just want to get from somewhere to somewhere else so they can get the advantages, the benefits of being someplace else. And they want it to be as friction-free as possible. So my users were like that. And I was aware of it because they were right next to me. You know what? This is one of the things that I had to adapt in, in the way I, I used to drive because in, in Uruguay, we have a manual transmission. And here... Uh, like God intended cars to be. <laughs> And now that you mentioned that, you know, I, I miss a lot <laughs> driving with a manual transmission. I, I feel more control over the, what the car is doing, even though yeah. what I want is to be somewhere <laughs> when I drive. Right, but, right. but you're engaged with it. Now, I, I, I don't want to make too much of a parallel to this because I hate the notion of automated testing and manual testing. What I do like, though, about that, that metaphor about that parallel is a sense of engagement, right? You feel more at one with the car. You are not an object at that point. Uh, you're, not, you're not a package uh, that is being transported from one place to another. You're, you're engaged with it. You're part of the thing. Uh, you are part of, of the system of the car and getting you there. And it, it, it keeps me awake and it keeps me alert. And it, it helps me to uh, notice things. It helps me to pay attention to the state of the car. Um, it's really interesting because sometimes I, I notice people who are, um, uh, I'm in their car as a passenger. And I'm saying, hey, do you hear that? And the, uh, you know, something about the engine or something about the car. And they go, what? <laughs> and uh, the, the funny thing about it is it's never occurred to them to pay attention to the car. You're trying to make you look the other way. So there's a kind of paradox there because I want my, the users of my software, when I'm making software, I want them to have a friction-free kind of experience. But at the same time, I'm a little worried about it because I do want them to be engaged with the product to the degree um, that um, if there's something 
that the product is not doing just so, just the way they want it to do. I want them to be aware of that. And I, I almost kind of want them to get frustrated when there's a problem so they can bring that problem to my attention so I can help fix it for them. So it's kind of weird. I'm, I'm on both sides of the fence when it comes to that. But it's absolutely the case that I, through my career in, as a developer and as a tech support person, I just I kept seeing uh, uh, people in pain <laughs> uh, because of decisions that I'd made as a programmer or, or things that I'd sort of forgotten or swept under the rug as a, as a programmer or about things that, that in our products when I was doing tech support for Quarterdeck um, or in the system around our products was making stuff harder for people in a way that I deemed kind of, it doesn't have to be like this. Things can be different. Um, so somewhere along that journey, I, uh, I met Kim Kaner. Uh, I had become a program manager by that point, but the head of the testing group at Quarterdeck had brought, uh, was bringing Kim in to teach a class to her testers. And she knew that I'd been fascinated by his stuff uh, in the middle period between the time I was a tech support person and the time I was a program manager, I was a tester. I worked really closely with testers. And as a program manager, I was engaging with the testers all the time. I, I identified as a tester, right? It's still as a program manager. And uh, so I met Kim. And it was Kim who uh, really got me excited about uh, uh, testing. Um, his... Uh, his style of teaching and his style of talking about testing as something far more than poking the product a little bit to uh, 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 make sure that it, it didn't uh, fall over. Kim's style of testing was about a deep study of stuff. Uh, it was about uh, a, teaching testing is not simply this technological thing, but really is a social science. And a few years later, I guess it was, nine, it was 2003 or 2004, I invited Kim up to Toronto uh, to uh, give a talk and to teach some classes and stuff. And his talk was titled Software Testing as a Social Science, where he was taking this really serious approach to the ideas uh, at the, of uh, social science ideas rather than physical science ideas with respect to testing. Um, that uh, we don't, the, the thing that I remember most clearly from that talk was the idea that testing uh, software doesn't give us perfect answers about how the software is doing. It gives us partial answers that might be useful. Just like social scientists do. It's not like the physical sciences where you, you know, have a very straightforward yeah. and, and you can formalize a straightforward means of, of analyzing things. You can formalize those things. You can use uh, very specific uh, formalized measurements for things. Things uh, uh, appear on some kind of a scale, some kind of physical scale. But with software, we're really examining how people feel about stuff. And we're examining relationships between people, not you're, you're not, not defining rules people. that happens all the time in all the in, in different circumstances. Yeah, that's right. It's that's less right. precise, probably. 
Right. So it's got to be heuristically based, right? It's got to be uh, uh, not, it can't be algorithmically based, strictly speaking. And to the degree that we have algorithms in software, um, <laughs> uh, the algorithms allow us to uh, follow a recipe, you know, given uh, uh, this set of inputs, we get this set of outputs. Um, and algorithms are, you know, uh, uh, as it were, infallible. Right, Al algorithms don't fail. They're, they're, that's the essence of it. Um, you put this in, you get that out, and it terminates. That's the other thing, right? <laughs> An algorithm ends. But the algorithms aren't solving the social problem as such because the social problem still exists. And here's an example of that, um, which uh, uh, James uh, Bach uh, pointed me to. A really good example. Um, long division is uh, an algorithmic process, right? Dividing, uh, so you, we go out for a, a meal, um, uh, you and I and uh, yeah, one other person, you know, we'll, we'll invite, uh, we'll invite uh, Claudia, our, <laughs> our mutual <laughs> friend. And uh, so uh, you and I and Claudia uh, go out for dinner and the bill comes back and it's $150 US, very nice meal and we had a nice bottle of wine. Uh, of course, uh, how do we divide the bill fairly? Well, one way we could do it is we could say 150, let's see, one, well, five doesn't go into one, but one does go into 15, so we divide it by three, and there we go, okay, so three, sorry, five, three doesn't go into one, so 15, five, and then a zero, and then, okay, good, $50 each. Except uh, you only had one glass of wine, and Claudia and I split the rest of the bottle. Plus, I had the appetizer and the dessert, and Claudia had the dessert, and all you had was you just had the, you know, the main course, and that was that. So is this fair? Well, mathematically it's fair, but socially it's not, right? The equation so, is going to be more complicated than that. Well, yeah, that's right. It, and it won't be an equation either. It'll be, a, you know, it'll be some kind of weird system diagram or something. But of course, we sort that out socially. And I say, okay, well, listen, I should, I should be putting in 75 bucks. And uh, Claudia had the dessert. She didn't have the appetizer. So, you know, so uh, and I, I drank the majority of the wine. So maybe actually it should be 85 <laughs> bucks. <laughs> so uh, so it, 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 that's a much more uh, complicated thing to resolve. But there's a problem in the way we think about software testing. And that is what we do is we put in 150 and three and we get 50 out and we say everything's okay. So we have to ask ourselves, is the software solving the problem, the, you know, the mathematical, the, the, the functional problem, the, the, the capability issue? Um, is it doing the calculations properly? Well, that's important. But we also have to ask ourselves a question, is the software helping us to solve the social problem? Is it helping us to, to address the job that people need to get done? Well, that's been an evolution all the way along um, through my uh, career in technology generally, but in testing especially. And I, I put down to that Kim Kaner, who introduced me to James in 2001. And, and James said, get your ass to Jerry Weinberg's community. <laughs> um, and uh, Jerry, great advice. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, Jerry was the master of uh, that. So, so Cam and Jerry, between them, and James and and I, I sort of immodestly say I, 
attempting to follow in their footsteps. Uh, Jerry's shoes are awfully big, so it needs a lot of people to fill them. Um, uh, fulfilling the, the, the humanist notions around casting has been what my kind of evolution has all, all been about. And, and all the little things, how I got into it, have been uh, founded on trying to, to scratch that itch <laughs> of uh, the fact that soccer isn't solving problems for people as well as it might. Those are the hardest problems because they, once you, it's like defining the, the, the equation that you want to solve because once you have, the, you have it defined with mathematics, it's very straightforward to, to find the solution. But, but the sure. problem is understanding which is the equation you need to solve. Well, that, 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 that is an important part of the engineering process, right? Uh, uh, not just as we, do we get the right answer, uh, but have we picked the right approach to get the right answer? But then the right answer is not always uh, what we want, or, or at least a certain kind of answer is not always what we want. We keep running into this uh, problem, it seems to me. I, I'm about to do a thing. I'm tempted to do it. really want to do it. Wherein I test is based on experience a couple of weeks ago. I test this idea. Can you print an envelope in Microsoft Word easily? Right? Now, that's not a matter of, well, uh, to say, I asked for a 14 point uh, a Futura font on the letter. Do I get a 14 point Futura font? That's not the deal <laughs> for me. Although that's, a, that, you know, that's an important part of it at some point. But what I want to know is, can I get that job done? And I, my experience last week, I don't know if anybody saw the tweet blast about it. Um, it took me way longer than half an hour and it was super irritating all the way along. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> it was confusing and it was difficult and it was uh, 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 surprising and it was annoying. and uh, Uh, that is something that we're going to miss if we treat software testing as a normal technical problem, as a mathematical problem, as an algorithmic problem. Not to say that that stuff isn't important. And I think James and I are, are starting to frame some language about the way we could look at, at, at two very different flavors of testing. One of them is the kind of testing that programmers uh, uh, do, the programmers should do, the programmers need to do as they're building something, focused on what we would call the discipline frame. Right? We, we frame this as, as, as in terms of, of discipline. And it, you know, we don't want to make it sound like a, a, you know, a punishment, that kind of discipline. We want to make it sound like this is what good... Uh, engineers do. This is what good craftsmen do. They have a certain kind of discipline about their work. And in that case, the kind of testing that we're going to do is going to be testing that is focused on uh, a correct output. It's going to be focused on, it's going to tend to be focused on the unit level. It's going to tend to be focused on things that are machine checkable. It's going to tend to be focused on automated checks. Uh, it will also include review and pairing that kind of, of, of testing, um, with the intention of answering this question, are we building the thing we think we're building? Are we building the thing that we intended to build? 
So in a, a you know, if we're thinking in terms of a, um, a bridge building task, right? We're, uh, is this, uh, <laughs> uh, are the nuts and bolts in the right place, right? Is it, has it been riveted properly? And, and uh, are the materials, have we, have we done a, a tensile uh, 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 strength test on the materials and so on? Um, it's like we, we understood the problem and it's like checking that we are solving the problem we understood the user had. Well, that's the other kind of testing, it seems to me. That's the other kind of testing, not the discipline kind of testing, but two other forms of testing. I'd like to make a short pause to thank Abstracta for sponsoring this podcast. Abstracta is a company fully dedicated to software testing that can work with you to push the quality of your product and processes to the next level. Uh, two other uh, uh, frames for testing. One, the intention frame is that do we actually know what the user's problem is <laughs> okay. and how we intend to solve it? So we think of that in terms of intention. And then uh, what we're coming to call the realization frame, which is um, a pun. Realization being, uh, it, realization having two meanings. One, have we realized our goal? Have we, have, we, have we achieved our goal? Have we brought this product into reality in some sense, right? Does it, is it a real product now? That, that sense of realization. But also the sense of realization that goes like this. Uh-oh. <laughs> I just realized there's a problem. Uh, uh, realize, uh, realization in the sense of recognition, right? Recognizing that there might be a problem here. Now, that is a different flavor of testing. It still uses tools, right? We can still use tools to help us do this. But the, uh, uh, the mission of this kind of testing is to ask ourselves, are there no matter how disciplined we've been, no matter how well we framed our intentions, and no matter how well we prepared for this moment, are there still problems that have eluded us so far that, that we've not uh, uh, quite identified? Um, and that's the kind of testing that we get with experience with the product. So in my, my bridge metaphor, uh, that's the kind of experience, or that's the kind of testing that we would ask. All right, what happens after this bridge is up there in a high wind? <laughs> right, remember those those pictures of that yeah. bridge in Seattle, Tacoma, or the London Millennium Bridge? Right, the other thing where they said, all right, let's see what happens when we actually put a bunch of people on it. And in both of those cases, in one case, the bridge shook itself apart. In the other case, um, very uh, carefully uh, re-engineer the bridge so it could handle. Uh, that kind of structure. I've walked across that bridge. It's sort of cool. <laughs> but, um, uh, that's the kind of testing that requires experience with the product. There's a funny bridge. I remember there is a funny bridge in, in I think it's in, in some city in, in Spain, in the north, that it's made with glass, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's really beautiful. It looks yeah. amazing. It's like a piece of art. But when it's raining, which is typically which typically rains in the north of Spain, it was very sloppy. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very hard to cross uh, walking through the bridge. So they yeah. had to put some extra layers of some other material. 
Right, right, right. That's the thing about engineering is we're not aware of these problems until we've gained some experience with them. Um, now, that speaks, it seems to me, to um, uh, an idea which is not honored very much in this business. The idea of examining history, examining the history of technology and uh, examining the history of science as well, uh, to see how wonderful ideas that we've had along the way uh, haven't always turned out exactly as we uh, thought or, or hoped that they might. Um, and uh, we're very bad at that in the technology business, it seems to me, because uh, par partly because it's a young industry and it's uh, uh, fueled to a great degree by the energy of younger people. Certainly that was the case when I was in a Silicon-like Valley company in the 1990s, right? We were, we were all young, we were all um, uh, ambitious. We weren't tremendous students of history to the de degree that we could have been. I think that's why, to this day, we have people coming along and selling software, trying to sell software, trying to design software, where they say, hey, we've got a program. Uh, we've got this idea for a program that will check other programs. And all you have to do is feed program A into our program. We'll call it, our, our program is program X, because X is cool and, you know. <laughs> So program A, the, the program that we want to test, we're going to feed that into program X, and then program X will tell us about all the problems in program A. Well, you know, even the most modest student of, of computing history knows about the halting problem. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, a more diligent student of uh, uh, the history of technology will uh, recognize that as early as the 1950s, certainly in the 1960s, people were coming along and saying, hey, we've got this fantastic idea for a program, a program that can tell whether another program has uh, problems in it, can find all the prob problems in this other program. So it used to be, I don't know what they used to call it, but now they're calling it AI. <laughs> hmm. And they've, they've got these uh, machines that are coming along and say, hey, look, we don't need, uh, we don't need actual testers. We've got machinery that can tell you uh, whether there's uh, uh, problems in your product. Well, you know, to some degree that's true, uh, but it's been true as long as there have been compiler checkers. You mentioned something yeah. before. You mentioned yeah. an example before uh, when with the driving uh, cars, with yeah. the shifts, with that, that automation is like um, avoids or, or you forget about the curiosity you don't pay attention to maybe some weird sound in the engine or things like yeah. this. So probably this is one of the risks of, of uh, just trying to automate everything and, and, and say, from now on, this system is going to take care of, the, of everything for me. Well, let me tell you about a company that I went to in uh, uh, Denmark uh, not too long ago. Uh, what they're doing is really fascinating. What they do is they, they make really, really sophisticated audio instruments. Okay. These fantastically sensitive microphones that they train on jet engines 
to notice changes in the sound in the operational profile and to put those changes in front of a human being to interpret. So that's the kind of tooling that I'm fascinated by. Not tooling that, that replaces testers in any sense, or not tooling that purports to find problems, but tooling that amplifies our ability to find problems. Um, and if, if we thought about uh, uh, testing tools in that way, I think our testing tools would be a whole bunch better. We would have more modest aspirations for what the tools can do, but we would also uh, uh, place in their proper context, in their proper perspective, the things that tools can do and the things that people can do. So for example, uh, these tools helped uh, designers of cars, and they showed me how it worked, to um, uh, give a sense of what it would sound like in the car for the rider <laughs> and how they could make little adjustments to the car to make the sound, you know, to, to dampen the sound of the engine and to dampen the sound of all the other machinery that's around in the car, which is not uh, insubstantial, by the way, and, and create a more pleasurable experience for the rider by doing very sophisticated analysis of sound in the car. So these are tools that help with analysis, but they don't for a moment uh, uh, suggest that we're gonna replace either mechanical engineers or audio engineers in the design of the car. It's just gonna make those people super, super powerful. And that's fantastic, that's great. Same thing, I was, I was about to talk about compiler checkers. Compiler checkers help programmers save a whole ton of time by looking at the program lexically and syntactically and saying, are there any obvious, easy errors here where the programmer has uh, expressed herself in uh, a way that, that uh, you know, will cause memory leaks or that will uh, uh, cause the product to fall off the end of an array or something like that. Uh, those kinds of tools are straightforward, uh, not too hard to write, uh, have gained increasing sophistication over the years, uh, especially as languages have gained flexibility. There's you know, room for interpretation. So now the compilers will flag something. You sure you really meant to say that? And without actually saying that this is an error, that sort of stuff, that kind of assistance for programmers in IDEs and things like that has been enormous. It's been really, really amazing. It's made uh, programmers a lot more productive. Testers, I don't think we've done exactly the same thing. What we've done for testers, we've done something really dumb, I think, which we focused our attention in testing tools on saying, all right, well, let's see, what did we, what did we have before? We had a bunch of procedural scripted test cases that would try to turn testers into machines, saying do this, do that, do this, do that, uh, type here, uh, type this here, click that there, and uh, uh, then see if you get the output, the correct output at this point, uh, based on this thing that we already figured out. Well, that was a pretty dumb idea to start with for testing, but what makes it even dumber is dumb to take a human and try to turn that human into machine. It's even dumber to take the process of 
trying to take a human, turn it into a machine, and then mechanizing that process so that what we're getting is a machine acting like a human that's being asked to act like a machine to try to find human problems in the product. It's a crazy way of going about things. <laughs> <laughs> instead, okay. instead, let's go to the, the equivalent of compiler checking for, uh, for the discipline frame. Let's put that in the discipline frame. Give that stuff to the programmers help the programmers out to some degree in constructing uh, ideas about risk and ideas about possible problems, and maybe even a little bit of uh, coding and application of those tools. As testers, let's do that. But as testers, let's put our attention into the realization frame where tools can help us, but really what we're trying to get our minds wrapped around is the experience of the product. And in those uh, things, we're not only looking, I'm not just talking about user experience stuff, not just talking about user experience stuff, mm -hmm. I'm also talking about the kind of experience we might have if we, uh, using a bot, um, allowed uh, the machine to do a, a whole ton of very, very simple and straightforward transactions to see how it responded under load, right? To, 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 to put big loads on the product and to do it that way. And, you know, not to bother so much about simulating what the users do. We can do that kind of testing at the API level pretty, pretty straightforwardly and pretty easily. But here's something that we can't do very well, uh, which is to uh, uh, have the machinery follow a, uh, a task. Give the machinery a task to do and tell the machinery, go do this task and tell me about any problems you run into when you do it. Well, the machinery won't do that. Machinery's not good at doing that. But if we give to the tester this assignment, here's a job that somebody who uses this product is trying to get done. Try to get that job done. And here are some ways that, that first of all, just try to do that and then report on any problems you find with that. That's a good start. Second is, all right, here's some variation you can put into this. Not just the way we intend for the person to use the product, but here's some ways in which people, we've noticed patterns of this because we're social scientists and ethnographers and we go out and we look at this, how people, how people actually use software. We come back and we say, here's some things that we've noticed people doing. There's reasonably foreseeable ways in which they could misuse the product or use the product in ways that we hadn't intended or that we hadn't really thought of very much earlier on. Like, <laughs> have you ever seen a use case that includes as step five, and then the user closes the laptop lid. <laughs> What's happening <laughs> <You just> there? <laughs> you know, you, well, you never see that in the use case, right? Everything, everybody in the use case, everybody is always very well trained. They're always prepared to do the job. They're never distracted. They never have to reach for a pen or a pair of scissors. The boss is never tapping on their shoulder and saying, when are you gonna get this thing done? Um, the, um, uh, their kid, or their cat is never interrupting them because they're working from home, you know? That, that's never there in the use case. So as testers, I think our evolving role is to uh, start to, to bring out that aspect of, of testing, the, the experiential notion of testing from the user's experience perspective, but also to think about what the ops person's per, uh, uh, um, experience with the product might be like. If a, a, a number of uh, users are seeing cascading failures, 
what is the ops person, how's the ops person going to respond when their job is to maintain the back end and, and to, to, to identify, oh my God, the database is, is getting out of sync with, with what people are actually doing. Um, I remember back in, uh, it was in 2000, it was just after my daughter was born, 2004, there was a big problem at a, at a big bank in Canada because a programmer put through a one-line change, right? One-line change in the product. And uh, it was a, a big batch process. It starts up around midnight. And uh, about three o'clock in the morning, the company that was responsible for uh, a certain kind of uh, a transaction process and related to that batch process and said, hey, wait a sec, wait a sec. Something's, something's off here. And they reported back to the ops people at the bank. The ops people said, oh my God, okay, we got to get this fixed. Let's back the change out. Well, that's really straightforward, right? It, from the programmer's perspective, oh yeah, I'll just, you know, it, it, go back to, you know, Git or whatever and, and bring out the next to last version and fix the problem. Okay, and now we can put that back. Well, there's another issue and that is that there's an entire three hours worth of batched database transactions which now have to be rolled back. Ouch. So from the programmer's perspective, fixing the problem took a minute, you know, or something really easy. Uh, from the uh, perspective of uh, uh, rolling back the database, you know, freezing the database and rolling it back and restoring all those transactions and restarting them, that took two weeks. So it seems to me that uh, there was a step missing <laughs> yeah. somewhere in the bank's process, which is to let's get a little bit of experience with this one line change on a simulated system, one that, that, that provides us with a, a reasonably realistic uh, set of experiences to go through. And let's see how that goes. And let's alert ourselves to the possibility of those kinds of problems. So I'm not just talking about user experience, I'm also talking about organizational experience, operations experience, uh, uh, um, systems experience uh, with things as they're changing and as they're being built. There's a huge backstage behind a, a system, right? There, there are so many pieces uh, and all of them are an important part, play, play a role in the final user experience, right? So Absolutely. I yeah. guess we, we should pay attention to all of them. Related to, to what you were saying uh, about AI and automation, uh, I remember the, a phrase, a quote from Cam Kainer, which says mm. that uh, automated automation tools should be a way of expanding the reach of the testers, no, right, right. not a way of replacing them. Replacing yeah, them. yeah. Am amplifying our superpowers, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, when I think about it, automated excavation machines, uh, we think of, of, of testing tools in that way somehow or other as... Um, uh, something that can uh, uh, replace manual labor. And it is uh, absolutely true. If you've got an excavator, uh, that excavator can do a whole lot more work than a single uh, person with a shovel, right? So now we can have one person operating one of these complicated bits of machinery doing the work of dozens and dozens of people. But testing isn't like that. 
Testing isn't like that. Unless what we've already done is we've turned testing into this sort of rote, uh, 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 unless we've already mechanized the human performance of testing. Until we've taken an idea of how the testing is just this ordinary mechanical thing that we do, then we can uh, um, make uh, human testers go away. But my, my uh, contention is that in that case, those were mechanical testers placed inside the body of a human, <laughs> right? which is a bad idea to start with. Instead, think, okay, supposing we got a really um, uh, interesting uh, tool that could help us with coding in the qualitative research sense, not programming, but classifying. Supposing we got a thing that could classify um, uh, things uh, to make a researcher more efficient. We wouldn't be talking about getting rid of researchers. We, we, we would be talking about uh, accelerating the process of classifying things such that a researcher could analyze the data in more sophisticated ways. Now, this sounds like a really good idea. And to a certain degree it is, right? It, it's kind of cool to have machinery look over large volumes of data and uh, uh, classify it in a very accelerated way. But of course, my tester's mindset says, huh, what could possibly go wrong with this? And uh, uh, here's how it could go wrong. If the data is in some way bad, like for example, if there are uh, bits of the data that are being omitted, uh, if there are bits of the data that are um, uh, outliers in some sense that we want to uh, be a little bit more skeptical about, uh, if the data is in a form that is unsuitable for this kind of processing, but the machine tries to process it that way anyway, um, if it is time series data, one of the things that happens, I, I, I did some work with a, a company that was involved in uh, some neuroscience related research. And so they would be taking signals from uh, EEGs, from, from, uh, uh, from uh, sensors, they hook up to people's heads, and they would be trying to analyze it. Well, one of the first things that the uh, neuroscientist slash data analyst told me that uh, was a big problem for this was that the time series are different. Some people are taking measurements every fifth of a second, some people every tenth of a second, some people are taking measurements every eighth of a second. So that stuff has to get normalized. But when we normalize the data, uh, in order to get it to uh, a, a tenth of a second resolution, we have to take those fifth of a second measurements and extrapolate. Yeah. Uh, do we have to take those eighth of a second that, you know, one eighth of a second measurements, we have to, to, to normalize them using interpolation uh, somehow or other. So uh, the data gets fuzzy. Is that fuzziness important? So apart from all the data wrangling that we have to do, we also have to do data analysis to ask ourselves the question, well, could this go wrong in some sense? Um, I noticed in the last day or two, MIT has just withdrawn from access to AI researchers, this whole body of data, this whole huge data set, because they've realized, surprise, surprise, that it's systematically biased in various kinds of ways that would lead to misleading results. 
um, the uh, stories, the uh, uh, warnings that we're getting now, they're, they're the famous ones about Amazon, uh, you know, creating hiring profiles, uh, using machine learning and AI to select just the right people. And surprise, surprise, the right people are just like all the guys, all the white guys mm. who work at Amazon already. And not like different cultures, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different genders, uh, different gender preferences. The AI has noticed these patterns. Now, of course, we can correct it. We won't tell them specific things about anybody's uh, uh, race. You know, we, uh, we'll just uh, put in, uh, we'll just give it the data and we'll leave that bit out. So what does the uh, machine learning do? The machine learning finds patterns uh, based yeah. on addresses where people live. And of course, people of certain races and ethnicities live in certain places, other ones live in other places. So, you know, it's a really, really good way of fooling ourselves if we're not super, super critical of our data sets. So there, there, so you, have a, there you have an example of the re realization frame. Right, 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 right. And also exactly. you, you, you can see that it's a social problem also. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, we're aware of the famous ones. You know, uh, there's stories about, uh, you know, people who can't get mortgages. And, and I, I know of at least uh, uh, one tester who, who has reported to me that she, a black woman, has a much, much harder time getting approvals for loans or mortgages or, you know, a car loan or something like that than her husband, who is a white guy. Uh, this is uh, Ash Coleman. And we've got to let, start listening to people like Ash because they have direct experience on one level of that. But of course, one thing that Ash is uh, not particularly much these days is poor. So she's well off and I'm well off as, as, as such things go. Uh, so uh, not to question Ash's empathy in any sense, but uh, we do not have the daily experience of, of being a poor person and we don't have, we're not going to get rejected on the basis of the fact that we're just poor. <laughs> so uh, even, even the people who are super, super sensitized to this sort of stuff because of their circumstance, because of their situation, um, I think they would be the first long before uh, I would, but I'm catching up, I'm doing my best, they would be the first to point out, you know, if there are things that, that I got missed on, there are things that other people could get missed on. We got to listen to those people. Um, and so it, a big part of our work as testers, it seems to me, is to, to listen to non-experts, to listen to non-technologists, and to synthesize from what experts can tell us and what non-experts uh, uh, experience to uh, sharpen our notion of our own expertise. That's, that's really super important. Uh, that uh, uh, one aspect of, of expertise that is, I think, critical, a real expert is humble about his or her expertise. <laughs> and uh, 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 developing humility is um, sometimes a bit of a struggle for uh, myself. Uh, and it's certainly uh, a struggle for lots of the people we see leading tech companies. You know, uh, uh, they're very, very confident folks. And they have a right to be uh, confident. They're, uh, you know, they, they, uh, 
accomplished some amazing things. But a lot of their accomplishment is based on uh, uh, where they came from and their position. And a lot of their accomplishment is based on luck. Right? What do you mean? Oh, well, um, here's an example. Um, I, this example comes from, uh, from me, from Nassim Taleb, and, and work associated with that. Imagine uh, year one, there are, a th I'm going to choose this number uh, specifically because it rounds down so nicely in ways that I'm familiar with. Uh, we get a bunch of people who are stock analysts, okay? And uh, uh, we evaluate them based on how well they performed against the market. Okay. Well, on average, uh, just by sheer chance, half of them will outperform the market and half of them won't. Okay. So year two, we've got 512 people. We started with 1024 the first year. In year two, we've got 512. And of those 512 that year, half of them outperform the market and half of them don't. Half of them lose money. So in year three, we've got 256 of them. And of those, half of them outperform the market, half of them don't. Well, after 10 years, we've got one stock analyst who has overwhelmingly hit 10 years in a row has outperformed the market. And that person is regarded as a genius. But they're not a genius, they just got lucky. <laughs> for all, right? For all of the people in Silicon Valley, and I'm not, uh, you know, and, and other uh, entrepreneurial positions around the world, there were lots and lots of entrepreneurs who ran into some kind of uh, uh, good luck and others who ran into some kind of bad luck. Uh, circumstances beyond their control. For example, <laughs> somebody who launched an initial public offering in January of 2020 has one experience and somebody who tried to do it as of uh, uh, um, April 1st, 2020, going to have another experience. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, I guess. So uh, we've got to uh, also look at the degree to which our experiences are based on good fortune and luck. Got it. Uh, I think something you, you just mentioned, it's important to be self-confident, but also to keep asking questions, even to yourself. Or uh, This is also part of our curiosity as, as testers and our ability to continue learning, right? Yeah, and it's really funny. What James and I were developing code recently, and... As developers of that code, boy, were we confident that there were no problems in it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> and it's really, really hard for us as testers to look at something that we've built and to say, okay, how could we go wrong? Well, here's a few obvious things. Oh, let's check for those. Oh, good. We're fine like that. And of course, as soon as we started to use this product in a, I, I used it, fortunately, before using it in a class, I used it in a, a, a webinar and a workshop. And it failed spectacularly. It was hilarious. It was really wonderful uh, because it was such a great lesson on how your builder mindset requires you to, in a way, it requires you to drop humility because you want to get something done. You want to achieve your ambition. Uh, there's a wonderful thing. I, I keep coming back to it. It's from uh, this a terrific movie called General Magic, which was about a um, an attempt to build smartphones. 
in the 1990s, in the early 1990s, there was a vision for this thing, and you can look at the drawings and it looks for all the world like an iPhone. 1992, 1993, and I was working close enough to people from that part of the world um, that um, uh, I heard about it. Uh, James, at the time, he had been working at Apple and, and was working at, at, uh, at Borland, I think, by that time. He was close enough in that community that he actually knew people who uh, went there. Maybe he was even invited there uh, or something like that. But it was a project to build the first smartphone, and it was extraordinarily ambitious. Uh, it was a really cool idea. They had amazingly smart people working on it. You know, um, uh, Bill Atkinson was working on it. And um, uh, uh, it had enormous amounts of investment. Uh, it was a, a mind-blowing thing. And, of course, it blew up. It, it didn't, the project never shipped. There were a whole bunch of issues associated with it. It involved a large number of companies. It, they had to get the telecoms in place uh, uh, in order to uh, agree. And of course, it, these are big stodgy companies. They were even more stodgy back then than they are now. And uh, they wouldn't agree on stuff. So in the movie, in the, uh, uh, the documentary, the guy who was a principal visionary for this project um, uh, says something really wonderful, illustrating the difference between the, the programmer builder mindset and <laughs> the, that of more reflective and sober people. So there's a guy uh, that uh, Mark and Andy and Bill, Mark Porat is the guy who's eventually going to uh, deliver the quote. Somebody's reporting that Mark and Andy and Bill together decided, well, this is the person, person to manage the engineering team. That's what they wanted me to do. And then there was this one day where I came to talk to all of them at once. And they say, this is the engineers, the engineering team. They say, oh, we don't need a manager. We don't want you because we don't need a manager. Our leaders are Andy and Bill. That's what makes this place great is that we don't have managers. And then one of the guys who was an engineer said, yeah, we can be engineers without a manager and we know what's best. Managers are just going to get in the way. We don't need program managers. We don't need any of that stuff. We're just going to make it happen. And then Mark Porat, who is the, the, the leader of the vision and who is a, just a, a delightful guy to look at in this documentary. He, he's he's, he's a, clearly an old, wise, uh, older, wiser man, very smart. Not in the tech industry anymore, so far as I don't know. He says, there was a fearlessness and a sense of correctness. No questioning of, could I be wrong? None. Because that's what you need to break out of Earth's gravity. You need an enormous amount of momentum. And that momentum comes from suppressing introspection about the possibility of failure. Hmm. And that's why testing is such a difficult job. Because our whole world is about anticipating the possibility of failure and investigating where failure is happening, looking at how failure could happen and gaining experience of the ways in which the product is failing to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a socially difficult thing. Yeah, totally. Helping others to continue asking the questions or, or, or having doubts about what they are trying to achieve and yeah. 
Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's, that's said. It's our, our job as testers is to preserve doubt when everybody else around us is sure of something. Right? <laughs> Michael, uh, I could continue talking for hours with you. <laughs> certainly, certainly I could. Certainly <laughs> <laughs> obvious. I love it. It's a uh, delight to talk with you, though, Federico. You're, uh, I had such a wonderful time in Montevideo and, and with your people and with yourself and uh, uh, drinking that uh, uh, stuff from that big coconut. The mate? <laughs> mate. mate. Thing. Yeah. In fact, uh, we enjoyed uh, quite a bit of mate. Uh, yeah. The, cool. the Uruguayan experience. And also, oh, did we ever eat well? I don't, for you, it's normal, but for me, it was really special. <laughs> it was a very intense week, I remember. It was. Lots of ideas, lots of conversations, lots of discussion. I really enjoyed that. Uh, to, to try to wrap up, I would like to ask you if you have anything you would like to invite the, the listeners to do. I know that you are offering the rapid software, software testing course online. Yeah. If you're, uh, now, I know that we're recording this at one time in the, the uh, distribution of it is going to be later. But I think there will be one uh, or maybe two classes uh, that uh, this will be in time for. Um, one would be Rapid Software Testing Explored, uh, which I will be teaching oriented towards uh, European and UK time zones. So I'm going to start at 6 o'clock in the morning, my time, which is uh, Eastern time in, in North America. Uh, that will be uh, September 15th to September 18th, four-day class, uh, five and a half hours clock time, uh, three 90-minute webinars each day. Then James will be doing rapid software testing applied, which is a whole ton of fun. Uh, rather than being a survey of uh, rapid software testing and the concepts and the ideas behind it and little exercises focused on one thing to another, rapid software testing applied is uh, a three-day deep dive into a particular product through the lens of rapid software testing. Hmm. Interesting. So those two things are on the schedule for now. That, that one uh, is uh, September 23rd to September 25th, um, uh, 2020, just in case people are looking at this in the archives. <laughs> uh, and then Rapid Software Testing Explored is the 15th to the 18th of September. Uh, but basically, uh, look at my site, www.developsense.com. Look at James's site, www.satisfice.com. And our schedules are up there, and um, uh, we will have uh, uh, classes um, being taught uh, in a way that's weirdly more accessible uh, than they used to be, because now anybody from anywhere around the world can join anytime. Yeah, this I is the advantage of yeah. yeah, it's it it is a you know it, it, what you lose on the swings you gain on the roundabout sometimes. Um, of course, uh, it's not uh, it's not the same as the in-person experience um, because there's something really magical about being in the same room with people as as we're all finding out just now right yeah. uh, pe people used to complain about uh, meetings uh, well boy uh, meetings in slack and zoom and all that are, are uh, uh, nothing like the real thing nothing yeah so but still i i will share the links in the notes of this episode oh, perfect Great, thank you. And I I took this course in in Uruguay when you were there, and I really enjoyed it. 
uh, it was amazing all the things that you shared the real experiences uh critical thinking all the time is like <laughs> is uh, those were like uh, three very intense days in terms of uh thinking all the time you know uh, and this is something i loved about the the, the course and i i really recommend it oh well that's lovely to hear thank you it, and it, that that was a great group too um i always admire people who are taking the class in a language that is not their native language because that's just like this whole extra work yeah. that's going on. Um, so it's a, it, it can be a little bit of a whirlwind. Spacing it out over four days is uh, possible now. It's easier, uh, of course, uh, these days because of, uh, again, because of that. Uh, but it, it causes me to wonder maybe what we should do uh, when everything gets back to something closer to normal Maybe we should just become tourists and do half days of uh, classes uh, over several days and, and, you know, enjoy the time that we're spending in places. And that will give time for ethnography and, and, and uh, you know, detailed examination of how people are testing, do a class in the morning and uh, some research in the afternoon. So, you know, it, it's, it's positing all kinds of uh, uh, possibilities. It's a good combination of experiences. Yeah. <laughs> it would be. It would be. And we could do that with, uh, uh, with uh, the companies, at least. It would be a little bit harder for public classes. But with uh, uh, in-house work, uh, that could be super, super valuable for everybody concerned. Me too, actually. Let me know. Michael, thank you so much. Uh, let's do this uh, another time again, <laughs> because it, it was great. And stay safe. Bueno, grand placer. <laughs> Adiós. Adiós y gracias. I hope your sense for quality got better after this conversation. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe to Quality Sense Podcast. Tell your friends, your family, your colleagues or whoever you think can benefit from listening to it. I hope to see you soon. Adiós amigos.